Research in artificial intelligence takes place mostly at universities and large corporations, but both of these types of institutions have constraints that cause the research to proceed in a certain way. In a university, basic research might be hindered by lack of funding. At a big corporation, the researcher might be encouraged to study a domain that is not squarely in the interest of public good, such as targeted advertising. Oren Etzioni is the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and in this episode we discuss AI research, from the doomful premonitions of Nick Bostrom to the unbridled optimism of Ray Kurzweil, as well as the realities of how AI research actually proceeds. Projects at the Allen Institute are defined and structured to solve problems in an intelligent, scalable fashion so that engineering can proceed steadily from the local maxima of a problem domain to the global maxima. The Allen Institute seeks to bridge the gap by providing ample funding for open-source AI research for the common good. Oren Etzioni is also speaking at the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference in New York, September 26th through 27th, if you're interested in hearing him talk. Before we get to this episode, a few quick announcements. If you're interested in advertising on Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. There are more than 14,000 engineers that listen to Software Engineering Daily on a regular basis, so it's a great place to get your product out into the ears of developers or to advertise available jobs that you might have at your company. Also, if you're an engineer that's looking for an open source project to work on, check out Software Daily at softwaredaily.com. This is an open source news and information site about software. It's being led by Jeff Tribble, a member of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can also check out softwareengineeringdaily.com, which is the website for this podcast. You can find links to the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email. You can find a link to sign up for our newsletter, Software Weekly. And with that, let's get to today's episode. Oren Etzioni is the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Oren, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So the software community has come to a consensus that machine learning is extremely effective. And when a machine learning application becomes polished, we start to call it AI. And we're at this point of fruition where machine learning really works. It's being widely adopted. It's being baked into our everyday applications. Did we get here because of some fundamental technical breakthroughs or because of evangelism and like a changing narrative about how effective machine learning is? Well, let me say two things off the bat. The, the first one is that this has been uh, many years in the making. You know, I like to say that our overnight success has been 30 years uh, in the making. So very much a progression of uh, steps and advances and iterations, as we often find the case to be in software. But the second thing I want to say is it's not quite as uh, elegant and tied up as a bow in a bow as uh, you might think. It's true that we're getting increasing success with uh, machine learning and data mining and uh, deep neural networks. But it's also the case that a lot of blood, sweat and tears uh, has to go into it uh, before it works. Hmm. Well, what are the most important technical breakthroughs that have been made recently in, in recent years? I mean, obviously, it's been many, many years in the making, but uh, I get the sense that there have been some step change things, even if we've been iteratively trying different things and figuring out what the step change will eventually be. Absolutely. Well, there are two big things that have happened really in the last five years or so. The first one is uh, our incredible ability to um, store and process data, you know, particularly in the cloud with AWS and so on. So we now often have uh, more data available for these kinds of tasks than, than ever before and the ability to course through it quickly. Then the second thing is uh, because of the amount of data and because of the advances, you know, effectively Moore's law, but particularly Moore's law applied to GPUs, uh, the ability to run very 
complex uh, neural network algorithms and complex neural network algorithms on neural networks with many layers, what's called uh, deep neural networks or deep learning. Those things are relatively new and they've led to remarkable successes in machine learning applications, including in uh, speech recognition, including in uh, object detection, machine vision, and so the numbers, the error rates on these tasks have uh, plummeted, and that's what's gotten people uh, really excited. And of course, one of the most visible demonstrations was pretty recent, which is we used, or DeepMind, Google DeepMind used deep learning to beat the world champion in Go using a, a learning program. So all these successes have gotten people very excited. Yeah, my sense is that these the the tools of deep learning are what's so useful about them in, in, in a really pragmatic fashion is that they're almost a way of uh, form fitting machine learning to be able to take advantage of these uh, advances in Moore's law that you know we could have predicted a, a long time ago. So, you know, it's just fairly you know fairly um, you know these. Uh, um, these these things that we could have predicted. It's not like there's there's there was some uh, wonderful breakthrough in machine learning. It was basically the the data processing speed and like you said the storage abilities caught up to the techniques that we've had all along. So uh, maybe you could tell me if that's true and tell me how you define that term deep learning. Sure. So first of all, so we're all on the same page. Deep learning really refers to using a neural network to learn when there's more than two or three layers in, in the network. So um, these algorithms that have been so successful were really invented, you know, 30 or even, you know, depending on how complicated they were, even 60 years ago. And I remember when I was in grad school, and this is uh, embarrassing, but this was in the in the late 80s, Jeff Hinton was around. I was at Carnegie Mellon, and he was a visiting professor there, and he was uh, talking about these great algorithms. And there was a lot of debate. Uh, will these work? Will more symbolic methods work? And we, and we just didn't know. So the algorithms were around for a long time. Uh, what's happened with Moore's Law is that in recent years, they've proven themselves that when you get them deep enough, now we have these things with 7, 10, 15, 20 layers deep, and when you give them enough data, the other competitors start dropping out of the race. So, you know, think of it, right? The Olympics are, are you know, in the air these days. And so think of it, you know, you're running a marathon and in the first mile, everybody's running, you know, neck to neck. And the same is true 10 miles in. When you're 15 miles in, most of the runners have dropped out and you look at the runners and they're all deep learning algorithms and you say, huh. Uh, so, um, you know, these are the algorithms that are able to go the distance with massive amounts of data and massive amounts of computation in places where other algorithms are, are saturated. Saturated means they don't improve as you give them more data, right? Uh, so that's, that's what's special here. And most of these, or at least many of these algorithms, fall into the auspice of classification or prediction. What are the limits of these techniques when we're using them for the domains of classification and prediction? Well, so again, just to make sure that we're all on the same page as far as terminology, mathematically speaking, right, all these algorithms are approximating some function. When that function is binary, meaning, you know, yes or no, zero, one, we call that classification. So we have a lone application and we need to decide whether it's meritorious or not. Or we have a consonant and we need to decide whether it's B as in boy or P as in Paul. Those kinds of distinctions are classific is, is what's called classification. There's also something called regression where what we're trying to predict is not a binary distinction or classification, but it's a real number. For example, what's the probability that this statement is true or the other uh, statement is true? Or what's, uh, what are we predicting the price of this uh, product to be uh, a week from now? So all these sorts of tasks, uh, the deep learning uh, has been uh, quite good at. 
the places where it has challenges is when you need to make a decision that requires more common sense, more background knowledge, more reasoning. Not everything can be reduced to these, you know, distinctions, yes, no. Is that yet another question of cramming enough data in, or, you know, giving enough processing power? Do you eventually get these uh, characteristics of human reasoning or, uh, you know, whatever it is that uh, these types of classification and prediction uh, algorithms don't capture today? That's a really great question. So that's something that researchers debate. So I think the folks who believe in concepts like end-to-end learning and scaling deep learning to ultimately have networks that are, you know, as big as the brain, which has, you know, hundreds of billions of neurons and, you know, trillions of connections or synapses. They say, yeah, let's just uh, scale this up. Let's refine the algorithm. Let's give them a lot of data. And that's all we need, end-to-end deep neural network learning. Uh, There's others, and I'm in the other camp, who say, wait a minute. First of all, these so-called neural networks, actually the neurons in them, are a lot simpler than a neuron in our brain. Our neurons are incredibly uh, complex. Uh, And more importantly, um, it's not enough to emulate the brain and kind of a low almost hardware level, uh, we really need to have a a deeper understanding in a different sense, not deep as in more layers, but an understanding of of, uh, of what's going on. Uh, we need to have ways to put knowledge in, right? We're having a conversation and uh, I may be learning things from your questions. You may be learning things from my answers. Uh, and those are things that are way beyond what neural networks uh, today can do. The, the fact of the matter is they can't really even understand uh, a single sentence, let alone learn from a sentence and incorporate that into their uh, mental model. So many of us believe that while uh, this you know, work on classification and advances in deep learning are very exciting, we have a long way to go to achieve uh, human-level intelligence. And I imagine that experience with uh, Jeff Hinton, you know, where you had these uh, other algorithms, uh, aside from the, the deep learning techniques, back in the day, that has taught you to reserve judgment uh, without seeing data as to how these things are going to play out. You're so right about that. You know, (laughs) I'm, uh, as I said, I was in grad school in the 80s, so I'm I'm in my 50s. And let me tell you, when I was young, I knew... Uh, the right answer to pretty much any question you'd, you'd ask me about. Now that I'm older and a little bit wiser and I've kind of seen some things play out, I'm actually less certain than ever about what what the right answer is. The only thing that I am certain of is some of the folks you see who really are full of hype about AI, about machine learning, uh, you know, folks like Kurzweil or, you know, people like Nick Bostrom who are really kind of doing uh, uh, fear-mongering. I, I think those folks are um, are really overstating the case. And frankly, the, their statements are not backed by any data, right? So they say all kinds of things like the singularities around the corner or some such thing, but they don't back it up with data. So you have to be suspicious. You know, I agree with the, both of those guys have kind of a religious fervor around them. But I actually, I see some practicality in both of those extremes. You know, Kurzweil... It uh, really gets people riled up and probably that has some cheerleading effect for people at Google who are his acolytes. And then on the other side, Bostrom, you know, I, I, I'm with you that he's a little fear mongery. But then again, the downside risk, if he's right, is essentially infinite. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hurt to have a, a Bostrom or two in the world. Well, so let's let's talk the, about that in, in in more detail. So in the Kurzweil case, I would contrast him to somebody like Jeff Dean, who's uh, you know very technically deep and is you know pursuing exciting things, but in a more disciplined way. And let me tell you, right, you know, I know some of the folks who work with with him; they're really pumped up, they're excited. You know, he has to turn people away, right? Engineers who want to work on deep learning. So I don't think you have to go uh, to the uh, Kurzweil level to uh, 
uh, you know, to get people uh, excited. People are excited about genuine technical advances. Now, if you go to Bostrom, uh, you make a really interesting point about, well, look, if there's even a chance of one out of a thousand, then he's right, then then we should think about this. The problem is what's called, um, you know, Pasteur's paradox, right? And it goes something like this. Uh, you ask people, do you believe in, you know, God and an everlasting hell? And a lot of people will say, no, I don't think uh, that's going to happen. But then you ask them, look, do you admit that there's a one in a thousand, one in a million, let's say one in a trillion chance that that's actually true? And a lot of people will say, look, I can't prove to you that there's no everlasting hell. And they say, aha, then you have to be a you know, religious Catholic or religious Jew or whatever it is. And say, why? And they say, because look, the disutility, if you're wrong and you're you know, sentenced to an everlasting hell, is infinite. And so if you believe there's even an infinitesimally small probability, just do the expected value calculation and you have to be a religious person. Now, obviously, that's a, a paradox, right? That line, that line of reasoning doesn't work. And it doesn't work because when you have infinite disutilities, it distorts the whole equation. That's why it's a paradox. So I think, is it good that we have... Um, uh, you know, some folks like Bostrom and we have his center in Oxford that's thinking about these conceptual and philosophical issues. Absolutely. There's whatever, 10, 12 there. And probably as humanity, we could afford to be, you know, have 20, 25 people there, you know, more power to him. They're doing an interesting philosophical analysis. But the thing that I object to is the play that these rather hypothetical ideas that, again, are not backed by science or data, they're philosophical ideas, the play that that's gotten in the popular press uh, everywhere, right? You see places like Newsweek, which are frankly, you know, read by people who are not particularly well informed, saying things like uh, AI is around the corner and it's, you know, poised to take over. And this could lead to, you know, Luddites, to um, anti-technology feelings. It could lead to uh, regulation where regulation is not appropriate. And more than anything, it could lead us to uh, be distracted from what the real issues of AI are. There's plenty of real concerns that we should have, you know, the impact on jobs, the impact on privacy, the ethical issues around self-driving cars, uh, and the kind of, you know, drumbeat of, oh my gosh, AI is an existential risk, we're unleashing the demon, is a, frankly a distraction. Right. Yeah, I, I imagine you see that particularly acutely when you're looking at all these problems you could be tackling and we'll, we'll get into these i mean projects like being able to answer basic science questions yeah these are these are things that are still extremely hard to do uh and they're nowhere we're nowhere near even being able to imagine oh how do we keep the demon in the box as elon musk says uh we're nowhere near even being able to envision how this type of problem would manifest itself even if it's a practical concern someplace down the line as X approaches infinity. We have no idea what our programming paradigms are going to be like. We have no idea what our APIs are going to be like. So these things are simply metaphysical uh, discussions, and there's not really any, there's just not any really practic practicality to it, it sounds like, is, is your position. Um, that, that, that's exactly right. So we, we ought to have a rational discussion of uh, the costs, the benefits, the probabilities of different situations over the next five years, over the next 10, 25 years. Uh, if we're talking about things that are maybe 100 or even 1,000 years out, it's really beyond the horizon with which we, we can predict. So, uh, you know, maybe we ought to be talking about uh, the likelihood that uh, asteroids will, will strike the Earth. Um, you know, um, Andrew Ng, who's you know brilliant professor at Stanford, uh, uh, said that worrying about AI turning evil is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. It's too early. We haven't even shown that we can get you know two people to Mars in a, you know in a kind of economically coherent and reasonable fashion. Right. It's really it's confusing science fiction with with science. Right. In the movie, The Martian, we got some people to Mars and then, you know, uh, we left somebody there, you know, kind of like home alone by by, by mistake in real life. 
uh, A, that's not going to happen, and B, we haven't gotten people to Mars. Okay, so I'd love to theorize about this stuff all day, but we should talk some about, uh, you know, gravitate towards the discussion of the Allen Institute and what you are working on. So what is the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence? So um, first and foremost, we're a um, nonprofit research institute whose focused our mission is AI for the common good. And what that means is that while we're cognizant of you know, some of the issues and the risks, we're exploring the part of the ex- equation that frankly has been under-investigated and certainly hasn't gotten enough attention in the media, which is the potential benefits of AI. The most obvious example, not something that we're studying, but it's worth mentioning, is the potential of self-driving cars to reduce accidents. We have 30, 40,000 uh, highway deaths a year, many more people who are injured or you know, unfortunately maimed in these accidents. And we could bring, estimates are that we could bring those uh, accidents down by as much as 80% by giving a stronger role to uh, the computers and the machines um, in driving. And that's something that's already happening today with Tesla, with all kinds of you know advanced warning uh, systems on cars. That's a very real thing. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's much closer to what we do is what about preventable medical errors? Uh, recent studies show that the third leading cause of death in American hospitals is various kinds of medical errors that could be prevented. The doctors are overworked. The doctors are, are tired after long shifts, right? They're under a lot of pressure. They, um, they make mistakes. They can't keep up with the latest treatments, the latest literature, the latest knowledge about side effects, and mistakes are made and people die. So the way I look at it, we really have a moral imperative to to study AI with the goal of saving people's lives. The kinds of projects that we work on is we're going deeper into natural language processing, deeper into building computers that can uh, understand uh, us that can understand uh, background knowledge, that can ultimately understand scientific papers and help uh, researchers solve super tough scientific problems and ultimately help doctors make fewer mistakes. So let's talk about the the medical example in in detail. So there's plenty of podcasts people could go and listen to about the surface-level details of this increased human-computer interaction, the radiologist is working in conjunction with the computer to be able to identify tumors faster or whatever faster. Give me a sense of the really deep internal engineering challenges of solving this domain of problems. Um, I'll do that in a second because it's a great question. But your example of the radiologist just reminded me of just another really important point that I want to highlight. And it's the kind of thing where as soon as I say it, right, you know, your audience who's uh, technical, right, software engineers would say, of course, I get that. But really, the discourse about this is not like that. Um, AI technology is often perceived, right, as something that's going to take over. But really, the manifestation that we see is a lot more like your radiologist example, where it's helping somebody do a better job at a, at a really important task, like finding out if does this person have cancer or not. So that's Which, by really, the way, comes back to what you said earlier about our inability to factor in the human judgment angle at this point. Exactly. So, so the most successful radiology systems are going to be a human radiologist who has all kinds of intuitions and experience and uh, you know, can ask questions and so on, working hand in hand with a tireless system that's looked at literally millions of examples to analyze the radiology images. Together, they're going to do better than either uh, alone. And, and that's the wave of the future, AI uh, enhancing uh, our, our, our abilities. You know, I wrote an article said AI is going to empower us, not exterminate us. So then the next question to go to your question is, okay, then are you saying, Hey, you know, uh, we're in a rose garden and everything is easy and good. No, it, it turns out that to get there, we have to solve some very hard uh, technical problems. So where we are today is when you define a really narrow classification task, um, like, okay, does this image 
depict lung cancer or not, and you know maybe what stage uh, is it in. The computers are so good at making those distinctions. What's remarkable is some things that are really easy for people, like understanding a uh, simple sentence. Uh, those things are remarkably hard for for the machine. And so what we're working on at the Allen Institute for AI in, in Seattle, and by the way, I, I mentioned that because we are uh, hiring uh, engineers that we're 60 people. We have 20 open positions for uh, top-notch uh, engineers and researchers. And by the way, if you're a strong engineer, you don't have to have uh, experience in AI to work with us. We're just looking for, for super smart, uh, talented people. Sorry, that was a little infomercial there. But uh, with 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 that, you know, in mind, uh, the fact of the matter is, I could give you simple examples of sentences that uh, uh, you know an eight year old will understand, and the computer won't. So is is the way that that translates to the radiology discussion basically that the same techniques for recognize you know Google recognizing that a cat is in a picture, those same techniques are quite effective for, you know, I don't know, 95% of cases of recognizing some common type of cancer or some common type of uh, other malady that would be detectable on an image, some type of image scan, but there's some 5% or 2% that would be obvious to a human that would not be obvious to the computer. Um. Not quite. So the first part of what you said is exactly right, which is, right, you have those kinds of techniques uh, based on deep learning and machine vision will do a wonderful job making those distinctions. What happens is in a situation where something is out of the ordinary and you have to, um, you know, result, uh, you have to use more common sense. Let me give you an example. What if suddenly you see two images that are completely identical? Uh, maybe that was error in putting data into the machine. The machine is just going to analyze them, uh, say, here, I'll analyze image at a time. A person would say, hey, a minute, hey, wait a minute, something went wrong here. Or what if there's another situation where, I don't know, there's a smudge on the picture and you just literally <laughs> can see a smudge. There's all kinds of um, unusual cases, whereas the computer is the master of taking what's happened in the past Right. And finding the patterns in literally, you know, tens of millions of examples and then looking at new examples when there's something out of the ordinary. That's when 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 things uh, fall apart. The computer will never say, hey, wait a minute, let me ask a question. Let's have a chat about this. Let's clarify. And that's why when you have a situation like Go, where literally, right, the board is 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 black and white, both literally and figuratively, <laughs> when you have all these examples, and all you have to do at the end of the day is make a move, right, uh, then the computer is going to shine, right? This really, uh, uh, an artificial thing, uh, situation, if you think about it, what's amazing is not that AlphaGo beat the world champion. What's amazing is that people can play Go at a high level in the first place, right? Mm. It's a game, if you think about it, designed for a machine. But what, when you have something like a sentence, um, let me give you a, a concrete example. Time flies like an arrow is like a famous uh, example in, in natural language processing. We instantaneously and unconsciously understand that sentence in a certain way. You know, it's, it's, it's the idiom, time flies like an arrow. Well, the, the, the computer really struggles with that. First of all, what does it even mean to understand that sentence, right? Uh, we need to map that to some internal representation. Well, we're not even sure what that representation should be. Also, there's a ton of ambiguity that we don't think about. What if it's actually an imperative sentence that says, um, time flies, meaning you, Jeff, should you know, use a stopwatch to measure flies and do it quickly, do it like an arrow. Or what if it means there's a particular species of flies called the time flies, and those, those kinds of flies are fond of a particular arrow. So time flies like some arrow, right? And, and there's so many crazy interpretations of this sentence that you and I wouldn't even think of initially, but the computer has to because the computer doesn't have uh, common sense. And I can give you lots more different examples where when the problem is more ill-structured, more nuanced, when our human experience needs to uh, come to bear, 
suddenly the computer falls apart. How about uh, conducting a high-quality interview, uh, creating a podcast that's very popular? You can't give that to some neural network because you can't even you know, create labeled data for it very effectively, right? What are you going to do? Take all the pa- podcasts in the world, feed them to a neural network and say, learn? That doesn't work. Huh. Well, you, you burst my bubble for the day. That was my entire plan with this podcast. No, um, no, it's it's the other way around. You're, you've got you've got job security uh, in the sense that uh, it's not the case that in the foreseeable future we can replace you with a machine. Yeah, I know. There there goes my hope of automating away myself, though. Ah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, anyway, so more so more seriously, um, you know, when you're talking about hiring, uh, you know, there's 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 all kinds of places where a machine learning researcher could go these days. You know, you could go to MIT, you could go to Google, you could go to the Allen Institute. What is driving the different machine learning researchers to go in these different directions? When you're interviewing people, when you're bringing people to the Allen Institute, what are you finding are their motivations and what, what drives them? Well, uh, I'll tell you what one person that we hired from Google said, and I thought it was really quite brilliant. He said, look, Google has, pardon me, Google has 30,000 very strong engineers, but they don't have 30,000 interesting technical problems. So um, often what you're working on in one of these bigger companies, whether it's Google or Microsoft, I want to pick on, on Google, it's a great company, um, you're still um, a cog in a very big company. And when people want uh, more of a sense of ownership, more of a kind of broad mandate and purview, just ability to build bigger things, they naturally gravitate to smaller, smaller companies, to startups, uh, and so on. That's point number one. Point number two is uh, Jeff Hammerbacher, right, who was the uh, one of the founders of Cloudera and then an early employee at Facebook. He left all that behind and now he's doing um, data science at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, working on, uh, you know, using uh, big data and AI techniques, you know, to help uh, solve, you know, thorny problems about diseases. He said, look, the the best minds of my generation are, are working on getting people to click more frequently on ads. And frankly, that sucks. And now again, I, I, uh, I don't want to... Um, put anybody down. But I do think that some of us feel like we want the technical work that we do to to make the world a better place, not just to contribute to clicking on ads or, you know, to the bottom line of, of, of some corporation. And people who are sufficiently motivated by that naturally, you know, check us out, you know, uh, and we don't have an, a monopoly on this uh, by any means, but, but they don't want to work as part of the uh, of the ad industry, as part of uh, you know analyzing people's data and then selling them things. Absolutely. My sense, though, is that a place like Google or Microsoft has realized that that is the case, and they have started to give researchers who show a lot of promise essentially infinite latitude like you can if you're a great researcher you can go to google and say hey i want to research x it has no immediate bearing on your bottom line but you know you're you know you're a company that's interested in moonshots you know maybe this will pan out maybe this will this will be something that turns into your next huge business idea is that accurate or, or am I just totally off? No, you're, you're not off at all. That, that's a very fair point. And you're absolutely right. You know, I've, you know, I was at the University of Washington um, <clears throat> Computer Science Department for many years. I'm, I'm still on the faculty there and I've had, uh, gosh, more than 100 students of our students, probably several hundred by now, who've gone to Google and uh, other companies, of course. And there's really a wide variability. And there are some people at Google X or at other places who are working on uh, incredibly innovative uh, things and on, on moonshot uh, projects. And, and there are those opportunities. That's not the bulk of what people do, right? Google's got, you know, 
uh, Gmail and Google Maps and, uh, you know, products to maintain, they do make billions of billions of dollars, you know, uh, with targeted ads, and they have thousands and thousands of engineers uh, supporting that. So I think uh, it's important uh, not to confuse what most people there are doing with what some people there are getting to do. But it is absolutely the case that, uh, particularly at Google, but at any of these places, there are some people who are working on on incredibly cool things with incredibly cool data sets. You know, if you want to build the future of cloud infrastructure and dealing with mind-boggling amounts of data, right? Being at AWS, you know, in Seattle at, at Amazon is a fantastic opportunity. And the same with, uh, you know, the, the cloud infrastructures at the other companies. We, we don't have a monopoly on, on the exciting problems. Uh, I do think that in terms of cutting edge work in AI and cutting edge work that's directly aimed at you know AI for the common good, uh, we have a, a, a great a great place to work. But we're definitely not the only game, uh, even in Seattle, let alone in the in the world. I think that's absolutely true. I, I, sometimes I flip through the research, the recent research papers that have been published by companies Microsoft, Google, whatever, and there is uh, you know a lot of research about ads about. Yeah, here in, in improving the click through rate on some specific type of advertising is like yeah I don't know it's anyway um but so research for the common good um is how does this differ from the type of research that gets done at an academic institution is there more latitude because I see some people I know who are in academia. And it, you know, obviously great stuff comes out of academia, but in contrast with a place like the Allen Institute, it does sound like there is a degree of cruft that comes with the traditions of academia that would just significantly drag down your ability to, to move fast. Do you think that's an accurate contrast with a place like the Allen Institute? Well, here's how I would describe the uh, the, the contrast. Again, uh, having spent most of my career at universities, I am partial to them, and of course, we have to remember that uh, you know companies like Google or Facebook and you know many others came out of universities. Right? They were spun out of, uh, in Google's case, research, in uh, um, you know Mark Zuckerberg's case at Harvard, you know, kind of uh, informal research on on how to meet girls, uh, you know, what what have you. Um, the biggest difference is that at universities, uh, it's really what's called a curiosity-driven research, right? It's all over the map. Uh, you know, amazing things can happen, but of course, often they don't. And you typically have one or two people, maybe a graduate student and his or her advisor uh, working on a problem. That's only, uh, you can only go so far. At the Allen Institute, we're working on four or five grand challenge problems, and we have teams that are bigger, you know, teams of 10 to 15 uh, people, often broken into sub-teams that are smaller, but those teams are working together towards a grand challenge, whether that is developing sufficiently power powerful natural language processing so we can uh, build programs that can answer scientific questions and, you know, pass the uh, eighth grade science test or, you know, the SATs to uh, programs like Semantic Scholar, where we're trying to use AI uh, to combat uh, information overload. And as I said, ultimately help uh, medical researchers and doctors uh, do better research, make better decisions, and ultimately save lives. So to do those things, you do need uh, bigger teams. You do need more sustained investment. Often the code at universities, right? It's it's rapid prototyping. You know, you write a quick uh, prototype, you do an experiment, uh, you publish your paper and you move on. That's that's the right thing to do in academia. But if you want to go further, here's you know the famous uh, African saying: If you want to move fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Right. So at the biggest contrast between the Allen Institute and what happens at universities is that we're trying to go further, and we believe the way to do that is to go together, to have these uh, stronger teams. Mm -hmm. the, the other point, of course, is as a professor, there is a lot of 
uh, stuff you have to deal with, which is a distraction, particularly grant writing. Nobody in the entire planet, I've never met anybody, you know, in uh, 25 years as a professor who liked writing grants. You know, you write them, they get rejected, you have to rewrite them, eventually they get funded, but the research sponsor wants you to do something else. At the Allen Institute, we have a huge privilege, which were backed by Paul Allen, who's, you know, had a passion for this field for decades, and his marching orders to us is go have a major impact. And I know that that takes time. I know that a breakthrough takes time. I'm going to back you. So that's that's a huge luxury. You mentioned something really interesting there. Uh, it sounds like these problems that are being solved at the Allen Institute, and you've got these listed on the website. Uh, some of these problems are working on, for example, Aristo. This is an effort to answer basic science questions, like you know, eighth grade biology questions. You've got Semantic Scholar, which is a literature search engine that indexes scientific research papers. You've got Plato, which is extracting knowledge from images and diagrams and videos. It sounds like what you're trying to do with each of these projects is you take a really big problem, a really big canonical problem in machine learning, and then you find a base case of that problem that you can that feels more approachable. And the sense is that by attacking the base case, you're going to make meaningful progress towards solving the canonical machine learning problem. Is that accurate? Jeff, that's really a a great uh, articulation. I I have to say, if this uh, podcast thing uh, does not work out, we should talk about, we need somebody (laughs) to help us uh, craft this. But you you said it really- I heard I'm good at marketing. (laughs) (laughs) You are, you are. So um, you really said it uh, uh, brilliantly. The, The issue is, how can we tell if we're making progress? And given that there's so many- problems, you know, technical puzzles, research possibilities, how can we um, assess both for ourselves and for others if we're making progress? And so what we've done is we've identified problems like, say, an eighth grade science test where there's uh, a graduated scale and we can um, measure ourselves and exhort ourselves to keep making forward progress. And we try different things and we iterate through algorithms and through data sets like everybody else. But we've been very proud that over the last uh, three years or so, we've been able to continually uh, raise the scores uh, on things. And really, this methodology is, is relatively unique. We're trying to bring together the best of academia, which is um, informal brainstorming, creative research, you know, smart people working together with minimal hierarchy, minimal BS, with some of the best things from industry, which is, you know, more professionalism around our software, around our architecture than what, you know, the average grad student can muster, and a clear set of metrics and goals so that we can uh, track and make progress on. So give me, can you give me an example of one of those projects and what is the short-term goal of the project and what is the long-term goal of the project? Sure. So I'll give you uh, two examples. The first one, which again is really easy, is um, in the case of this eighth grade science test or these SATs where we have these uh, goals, we have annual goals of scores that we want to exceed. Uh, those are benchmark tasks, right? Uh, there's no, you know, kind of like a hardware, you know, spec mark for a chip. Uh, it's not that we necessarily want, you know, that this will be a, a huge thing if a, if a computer program can uh, do well on eighth grade science tests, is that we believe that in order to do that, we're going to have to solve difficult problems in natural language processing, in, um, in vision, uh, in machine learning, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, here in this case, the metric is uh, is really serving as a as a as a benchmark as a as a score. In the case of Semantic Scholar, which is our program, by the way, is available uh, free of charge. Anybody who wants to use it at uh, semanticscholar.org. Um, that program, we, we've invested a lot into building what we think is the best search tool for uh, computer science academic papers. And we're broadening you know, to neuroscience uh, and to other areas of biology, right? We're heading uh, in, in that direction. But we don't want to build a white elephant. We don't, we don't want to build a tool that we're in love with, 
has all kinds of fancy bells and whistles using AI, but nobody uses it. So we've challenged ourselves with traffic goals to say, look, uh, if this thing is so great, if AI really helps you in the search, people should start using this. And our goal um, for this year was to have at least 500,000 people uh, check it out. And we're very proud that we've already exceeded. Um, we have um, over a million visitors who've come to the site, even though it's currently just computer science papers. And the number of repeat users keeps uh, going up as well as people find value in it. And that also forces us to uh, ask the hard questions. Okay, how do we get to 10 million users? What is it that that people really need in the search tool, not just what we feel like putting in there? Mm. So you know, it really sounds like you have a focus on key performance indicators for these different projects, and I'm, I'm it makes me curious about how management of the institute differs from management of your different companies. You've started several companies for listeners who don't know. Um, in what ways does managing the AI institute differ from the management of the companies that you've started? Well, um, in 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 a couple of important ways, and and I, I I have had the privilege to start a few companies, particularly in the kind of e-commerce space. And I should point out, though, all those com- companies were always on the side of consumers. They're always ones that were trying to uh, find a better price for consumers. Uh, we had the first comparison shopping uh, search engine back in the in the mid 90s or ones that tell you when to buy your airline tickets so that you know the airlines don't trick you into overpaying so I have always been kind of uh, a little bit you know on the side of the uh, of the underdog I think one of the biggest differences is that when you have a startup, uh, at, until a very late stage, you're always raising money for the next, you know, 12 and most 18 months, right? It doesn't make sense to raise more than that because your valuation uh, should keep increasing. And that does put you on a roller coaster ride, right? You set ambitious goals, money starts to run out, you're looking for the next funding round. Sometimes that can cause, uh, you know, major shift in direction. Uh, it's it's pretty nerve wracking. It's pretty exciting too, uh, but it's definitely a roller coaster ride. Uh, here, because we're backed by Paul Allen and he has uh, this long-term vision, um, we're not on a roller coaster ride. We have ambitious goals, as we talked about in metrics, but um, we're not on that kind of roller coaster ride of of constantly seeking funding and and potentially, you know, radically changing direction or having to be uh, acquired or, or acquired because. Uh, some assumptions uh, didn't work out. That's one thing. And then the second thing, of course, as a startup, right, you have to have a business model. That's often one of the trickiest things. We've built um, in in the various companies I've been involved with very, very cool products where, where users really love them. But uh, the challenge was, how do you get users to pay for them? And uh, most of us are uh, reluctant, right, to uh, to part with our wallet and pay even you know five ninety nine for right, for some for some piece of software. And so the search for a business model can often be uh, you know challenging. And sometimes, even though you have a great product, you don't have a great business model. Again, at AI two, because we're a nonprofit, we explicitly say ahead of time we're not trying to find our, uh, a business model. What we're trying to do is have impact on the technology and make the world a better place. And, you know, having done the other one for, you know, more than 20 years, frankly, it's a relief not, not, not to worry about that and just focus on the, um, on the intellectual content, on, on the technical problems. So I really try to create uh, an environment uh, for kind of the, the younger and, you know, at this point, you know, smarter, more technical people on, on the team that we have to just shield them from distraction as much as possible and say, let's go do what you're, you know, you're best at and don't worry about all, all that other stuff. Hmm. So, and Paul Allen has started a number of these institutes. I, I, I know of at least two, uh, the AI Institute and the Institute for Brain Science. Does he have some overlapping mission between these different organizations, the, the Brain Science Institute being more biologically focused? 
So he is a a, a tremendous uh, visionary, and he signed the Warren Buffett pledge, which means that he's committed to giving away uh, billions and billions of dollars, and he's done that. He's done that with Ebola. He's done that, you know, in fighting homelessness. But a key part of his vision, as you said, is to create a series of. Um, uh, scientific research institute. Uh, there's the Allen Institute for Brain Science, and it's broadened its scope. We're we call ourselves AI2, both because we're the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence or AI AI, but also because we were number two. And since we were founded, there's already the Allen Institute for for Cell Research, number three. So, and he's continuing to grow that kind of. Um, uh, set of research institutes. In the case of the brain science one and ours, he's been you know, fascinated with the questions of how do we figure out uh, intelligence? And in some sense, when you think at the very high level, uh, he's kind of hedging his bets. He says, well, there's this methodology of neuroscience, which is in some sense investigating the hardware, right? Le- uh, really looking at the brain very closely at a, at a subcellular level. And then there's this more software methodology. Nobody knows uh, which is the right one. Um, why don't I you know, try to back... Uh, high-quality institutes in each and make sure they, that they talk to each other. So um, the CEO of the Allen Institute for Brain Science is on our board of directors. We often talk to Christoph Koch, who's their chief scientist. We're exploring where there's potential synergies as well. And what is your sense for where that border is going? Like, where are we going to find... Or what are we going to find at that interface between the human brain and the systems we use to interface with it? Like, you know, as a machine learning researcher, uh, if you're trying to build systems with reasoning as robust as a human, you know, is it practical to assume that the human brain is always just going to be this black box beyond some level of abstraction? We should just try to find where the border of that black box is and then just figure out some virtual machine that satisfies the characteristics of that black box. It just seems like we're never going to actually figure out, you know, the, the, the depth of the, the human brain. And therefore, we should try to figure out, like, where is the, where is the minimum border that we can define uh, so that we can uh, make an interface over that border? I don't know. Maybe you could it's – that's a, a jumble of thoughts there. But maybe you could uh, tell me where you, what you think we're going to find at this, this interface. Right. Well, again, I I like to say never say never. Uh, You know, I don't know if we'll never understand the brain, but you're absolutely right. Your intuition that this is a long road is is a very good intuition. And if you look at the questions and just like us, they have their own metrics and their own roadmaps. And if you look at what they're predicting, they'll discover in the next five years, in the next 10 years, it's still very basic, almost you might call them geographic questions. What is this cell type and what does this brain region do? And what is really kind of a map even of, of, of the human brain? Very, very basic things. Uh, an analogy would be, imagine that we took a, uh, you know, a laptop and we sent it, you know, back, I don't know, to the 19th century. And people, or maybe lots of laptops, and people were trying to figure them out by really looking at the chip level and at the wire level and trying to kind of measure electrical pulses in different uh, areas. Uh, you know, that's a level of abstraction that can tell you something, but it's not the whole story. So there is an analogy there, and there is a concern that looking at things at the very low level is challenging. What the the good news would be is if we were able to uh, generate some constraints from the study of artificial intelligence, they were able to generate some constraints from the study of the brain, and we we're able to put the pieces together and come up with uh, better, faster progress towards um, an understanding of intelligence. I, I love to give the analogy to when we as um, uh, humans were first studying flight. And some people said, look, we got to build 
a bird. Let's study how birds flap their wings and are very light. And that's what we're going to do. And other people said, no, we're, you know, we're going to focus on uh, airplanes with fixed wings, right? And that technology ultimately, um, after many, you know, false turns, uh, tended to win out. And of course, uh, that technology was based on aerodynamics and things like, you know, the Bernoulli principle. So um, from all these studies that emerged some general uh, principles of, uh, of, of, of flight and um, of motion that, that were extremely important, we haven't yet discovered the Bernoulli principle of intelligence. We still don't understand some very, very basic things. And that's why we're still in the early days uh, of these fields and the, the different methodologies are all doing their best. And to what degree is this analogous to how deep learning algorithms develop? Because my sense, I'm not a deep learning expert, my sense is that oftentimes these algorithms, uh, the way they develop is we don't know why they work as effectively as they do. We just know that they are effective. But you know, is is that is that analogous to this model of drawing constraints for the human brain and then drawing constraints for the machine learning model and fitting those constraints together? Um, at a very, very high level, yes. But if you look at the day-to-day research, and we certainly have uh, plenty of people here who are working on neural networks and deep learning, often the questions that are investigated are, are mathematical, you know, about, you know, hyperparameter optimization or their software engineering questions. How do we build a, you know, good toolkit to experiment with different things? They're about particular technical aspects that have to do with the particular neural network. You know, do we use a, a softmax here? Do we do pooling here? Uh, how do we do regularization? I'm throwing a bunch of jargon there, but these are, you know, various uh, statistical questions or kind of um, almost, you know, black art questions of the craft uh, of these particular tools. It's not the case that people are saying, hmm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, raise my performance on this tax by 10%. Oh, I know. Let me take this idea that's, you know, you find in the brain of monkeys. That's that's <laughs> not how, uh, uh, yeah. how it works. It's just right. uh, th- those are just still too far apart. Right. So we've done a bunch of shows about software architecture, how to scale a typical application. We've also done shows about machine learning. What is at the intersection of those two things? What makes scaling a production application that heavily uses machine learning, what makes that difficult? Well, you know, the the most difficult thing is the fact that even with these neural networks, most of the decisions, most of the work is still human engineering. So when AlphaGo won, or when AlphaGo was winning in the match and the, you know, some reporters asked me, you know, what do you think of all this? I pointed out to them that this is not man against machine. This is a team of brilliant uh, software engineers and researchers at Google DeepMind against, uh, you know, a brilliant Go player named Lee Sedol. Um, most, the hardest thing is the fact that quote unquote machine learning is 99% human manual engineering. And even with neural networks, they say, okay, you're doing less feature engineering. You're building less of the representation by hand. That's true, but you're still doing network engineering. You're still choosing how many layers and which architecture. And are you using, you know, uh, an LSTM or not? And I I don't want to throw a bunch of jargon, but there are many, many... um, architectural decisions and algorithmic decisions and representational decisions that are ultimately made by the human uh, engineer uh, in in any of these quote-unquote machine learning applications. And for that reason, that's why it takes years uh, to field um, uh, a new um, machine learning application. And that's why we need better software tools to facilitate that process. Mm -hmm. What are the tools that you're using these days, mostly? Is it Scikit-Learn or TensorFlow? Oh, so in in the case of um, 
uh, deep learning. Uh, a lot of people are using uh, uh, TensorFlow at the same time, right? There's plenty uh, in Vision, right? People are also using uh, Torch and other thing. It's really um, uh, a grab bag. And again, it's a little bit, uh, you know, like, you know, are you using uh, Java or using C++ or using Scala? We actually, our, our main programming language is Scala. You can get the job done in any of these uh, languages pretty much. It's, it's in part a question of, of, of taste. And again, I, I hope I'm not offending anybody who's a complete, uh, you know, aficionado of one language or another. I think most people recognize, okay, this may be my favorite language and it's got some features. It's also got some drawbacks and you can get the job done. Uh, right. And of course, you know, Turing universality and all these things tell you that, of course, uh, mathematically speaking, you can definitely get the job done uh, in any language. In the case of um, non-neural networks, you know, natural language processing, uh, you know, we have our own homebrewed uh, tools. We've actually released uh, an open source project called Ike, which is an interactive knowledge extraction uh, tool that, that we developed. And at the same time, we rely on, you know, Stanford NLP. They have a very strong open source project. I would say that uh, the biggest thing I can tell you is that, uh, A, we're in Scala. B, we do sit on top of AWS, which we found uh, very helpful. And C, that we use uh, open source projects uh, whenever we can, obviously, because uh, then we're effectively collaborating, collaborating with the community. Okay, Oren, well, this has been a real treat Thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate the questions, and I hope uh, everybody uh, checks out Semantic Scholar and uh, considers uh, a job at the uh, Allen Institute of AI, allenai.org in Seattle. Thank you very much, Jeff, for the opportunity. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow. 